Ricardo, I've got one word for you to describe this week's show. DTC. Yeah, so Casey, I'm thinking that's technically three words, but, but never mind that. Um, I, I don't think we've done an entire show focused on DTC before, have we? Hey, I didn't write the script, so. <laughs> so this is exciting, and I'm especially pumped for all the DTC founders out there tuning in. This one is for you. That's true. I mean, honestly, if you're a direct-to-consumer founder listening or, or watching us on YouTube, Stop right now, go grab a pen and paper or your iPad or whatever you like to use to take notes because believe me, you are going to be writing things down nonstop in a mad fury throughout this episode. Oh yeah, the tips and tricks are going to be flying and you just don't want to miss a minute. So should we just start the show or should we make listeners suffer a little bit more first with more of our carefree and eloquent banter? Oh, you're so cruel. Let's get to the music already. Listening to the Retail Razor Show, where your expert hosts and their guests cast through the clutter in retail and retail tech to shape the future of retail. Hello and welcome to season two, episode five of the Retail Razor Show. I'm your host, Ricardo Belmar. And I'm your co-host, Casey Golden. Welcome to the Retail Razor Show, listeners. Retail's unapologetically authentic. Podcast for product junkies, commerce technologists, and everybody else in retail and tech alike. We are back with another episode in our Retail Transformers series. And honestly, if you thought last episode's guest, Alan Smithson, was an absolutely incredible, never-ending source of value on the metaverse, wow, are you going to be blown away with today's guest and topic? Yeah. As a founder, I'm so excited we're going to dive into this world of D2C and talk with amazing expert that's Working with most of the top D2C brands out there, you would not believe how much knowledge she has to share and that could really impact your D2C business by multiples. Indeed. Faithful followers, you will learn exactly why Polly Wong is more than meets the eye. This may go down as one of our most listened to episodes. We're going to hear about what the right marketing and media spend mix should be for customer acquisition today. Because honestly, if you think it's the same as it was in the early days of D2C, boy, are you in for a shock. Yeah. I mean, did you even consider print? Like, say, catalogs? I bet you didn't. You will after this episode. And then there's all the tips you're going to hear on growth strategies, how to activate your CRM for more profitable growth, retargeting those customers. And what about opening stores? Have you thought about where to open stores? There's just so much we could list. I mean... You're going to hear so many incredible nuggets on marketing, ROI, ROAS, and just so much more. All right, then. Let's get to it. Let's roll. And we're here with our special guest and latest retail transformer to visit the show, Polly Wong, president of Ballardi Wong, which some people may know as a direct-to-consumer marketing agency, but more on that in a moment. First of all, welcome, Polly. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on the show. Since we first met you, we've both been looking forward to this conversation and really digging in. So excited. Polly, just to get us started, why don't you give us a more complete introduction of yourself and tell us about your company and what you do? Sure. You know, I've been in retail for 25 years, had an incredible amount of experience, really. It's both on the client side, it's a major retailer's I started 25 years ago at EddieBauer.com. I was fortunate to work at Williams Sonoma Inc. across their portfolio brands before 
jumping to the dark side, to the agency side, which is a lot of fun and an incredible learning curve. It's like learning on steroids, I like to say. Today at Bilardi Wong, we have 400 active clients, about 90% D2C brands. Of course, D2C brands have stores as well. Uh, and that's a very large uh, retail brands that, that all of you would know as well. Uh, tremendous amount of experience in fashion and home decor and furnishings, also in some niche categories as well. We definitely do tend to work with premium brands targeting an affluent consumer. So much of the vantage point that I have to share with you today is, is really from that angle of brands who are really targeting, you know, an affluent consumer. If the folks out there buying, you know, two or $300 sweaters and expensive shoes and $5,000 sofas. So I, I like to make that clear, but we're really privileged to just have an incredible vantage point into the industry. Really excited to dig deeper in this. As I mentioned before, I'm very intrigued in, in into the side of the business of marketing compared to a lot of the more traditional routes that have been taken over the last decade. So clearly you're focused on direct-to-consumer brands, both old and new, but certainly more established brands. I think based off of what you said, one of the areas getting a lot of press lately in the D2C space is really how the marketing spend is being shifted from Facebook, Google versus other mediums. Can you tell us a little bit about what's happening here with D2C brands and how that's changing yeah. this marketing mix? Sure. So it's been a really fascinating year to watch how the Apple platform changes have really impacted all of the digital platforms, specifically Meta. We found, as an aside, we found that really Google is quite a resilient, steady, reliable channel. You know, Google continues to make enhancements that work for advertisers. Performance facts on Google has worked very well for our clients over the last several months. So, so Google's very kind of reliable and steady. Google has had 10 to 50% increase, 10 to 15% increases in, uh, you know, costs, but really in line with kind of all the cost increases we're seeing across the PL as a brand or as a retailer. So, really, the challenge on the digital side in the last year has really come from Meta. And the Apple platform changes basically led to less effective targeting and less effective measurement. And at the same time that our clients have seen a less effective measurement and less effective targeting on Meta, they've also seen some pretty steep double-digit increases on CPMs on Meta or Facebook, if you will. And so we've seen dramatic underperformance in the last year, specifically in the social landscape. And so... You know, D2C brands inherently were built on Facebook and Google. The inherent DNA, if you will, of, of D2C brands is that one, they're performance-based marketers, and two, you know, they're just wholeheartedly focused on new customer acquisition. And so now you've seen that this Facebook channel, just, you know, one of the top two most critical channels for new customer acquisition for D2C brands has really begun to plummet in the last year. I know across our client base through August, our clients spent 19% less this year versus last year on Meta. And that's because of the significant underperformance. But obviously, Meta has taken the lion's share of most of the marketing dollars for D2C brands. So the question is, where is it going? You know, where are they shifting marketing spend? And that's been really interesting to watch. Great. And you really mention it as like a CRM strategy. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So I think, well, I think we can talk about kind of where they're shifting their spend, but also, you know, what are some of the the pivots that D2C brands need to make in order to be successful? 
And I think most D2C brands have not realized yet that the most incredible asset that they have is the customer file, the customer database that they've built up over the last five to 10 years. Now they've spent millions and millions of dollars building their customer file. New customer acquisition always comes at a cost. It's an investment. You cannot have a profitable business when you are only focused on acquisition as a fact. Oh my God, can you just like say that? We should just frame that somewhere, I think, just to make that clear for, <laughs> for everyone who's doubting that. Bold print. Yes. Also, I'll just go on a limb and also say you can't have a large, scalable, sustainable business when you only have a handful of product as well. We can get to that later. But definitely you can't just single-handedly focus on new customer acquisition. So I actually see, you know, there's a lot of headwinds right now, but I see a major tailwind that D2C brands could lean into is really CRM, right? You know, I've talked to many, many brands over the years that when you ask them, they say they spent 100% of their marketing budget on acquisition. And it's almost like CRM, customer retention management, is just an afterthought, right? Like, oh, we have email. Now, of course, they'll say we have email and SMS. But there are really five major channels in the CRM toolbox. And we don't see D2C brands leaning into that. It's a discipline and a skill set they need to evolve to very quickly because that's where the profit is going to come as we kind of stare down some economic uncertainty. So the five channels that we really think about, obviously, email, you know, second is SMS. Some clients have leaned to do it very quickly. Some have not. It's still a huge opportunity. I, for one, wondered at the beginning if really SMS would just be shifting sales from email. But we do find that SMS is an incremental revenue driver. So you've got email and SMS. Obviously, D2C brands are pretty good at targeting their customer file on Facebook, but they let it work too often on its own. And you really have to think about the segmentation and targeting of last customers. You have to carve out specific marketing dollars and targeting customers who've not bought from you in over a year. There's still a better focus for your marketing dollar than pure new customer acquisition. And so you really want to target your last customer file on Facebook. And you want to make sure you're looking at the frequency and the messaging and the targeting and the testing against that segment. So now hopefully you've got brands, you know, leveraging and leaning into reactivation on social. I think what we don't find enough is actually proactive spending on search with your lapsed customers. Let's say that Mary Jane bought a sweater from you a year and a half ago. And now Mary Jane is on Google searching for a turquoise turtleneck sweater. You should be there targeting her. You should be buying that ad against married search, right? Her click. You should be targeting her. And so really targeting lapsed customers when they're searching for your product is a huge opportunity. We don't see clients carving out marketing dollars to really have that kind of proactive approach at customer reactivation on search. So I think that's a low-hanging opportunity. And then for definitely print. So all 400, you know, retailers and brands here at Blarty Wong are in the mail. They're leveraging direct mail and catalogs for customer retention. It's extremely effective and driving up purchase frequency and revenue per customer and overall lifetime value. The great thing about print is that, you know, you've got a hundred percent reach. So if you want to target Mary Jane, who bought from you a year and a half ago, she's going to at least touch the piece to recycle it. So You've got 100% reach. All of our data over the last year as we've looked at it, we've found that if you want to target a specific customer at a specific time within social, you've got about an 18% chance. Basically, you've got an 18% chance of reaching who you want to when you want to 
on Facebook. And that's because you're competing with other advertisers for her impression. Mary Jane, your customer, only has so much impressions and frequency on Facebook and you're competing with other advertisers. And especially in our case, as I said, our clients tend to target, you know, affluent consumers. And so Mary Jane is a great shopper. And there's a lot of advertisers who want her impressions. And so you can't be sure that you're going to reach her. And on email, you know, maybe you're lucky if you've got a 20, 25% open rate. But once you start looking at your lapsed customers, maybe you've got a 10 or 15% open rate. And so the only way that you could make sure that you get 100% reach is in the mail. And so we see this CRM toolbox with email, SMS, social search, and print really as a major opportunity for D2C brands who built very expensive customer files at this point to really lean into that as a major growth strategy. It seems so basic, but yet at the same time, like, but nobody's doing it, (laughs) right? Is to like really go back into that core of, of all those customers. Right. And, and I would have thought that a lot of these DTC brands would have used search when, when they first came up, right, to try to get that initial customer acquisition. So I, I find it kind of curious that if, and maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, it seems to me that that's one of the original tactics I expect to see DTC brands use at the start, but then maybe they don't come back to it, to your point. You know, we don't see a fine level of segmentation and targeting, honestly, within digital media buying. You know, I I think about digital media agencies and I think of them as master tinkers. And I can almost just see all the people behind the scenes, almost like behind a clock, you know, turning the dial a little bit this way and a little bit that way. And it's really about bids and CPMs and it's about creative and frequency and the type of ad It's really not about, okay, this is our cheerleader cohort. Mm -hmm. This is our loyalist cohort. This is our, you know, former cheerleader cohort, meaning this used to be a best customer and now she's not a best customer. What percent of our spend are we going to target against her? What should be the target cost to retain? You know, the industry talks about the target cost of acquisition, you know, the cost to acquire a new customer. But you never hear anyone talk about the cost to retain a customer. And I think we're going to have to see a major shift in how people think. I think that's the one thing in my my 25 years in retail. I think there has to be an inherent pivot for D2C brands to embrace some of the real kind of retail operation discipline that has existed, you know, for many years and has allowed companies to exist for decades and to become billion dollar retailers. And that definitely includes financial planning. Mm -hmm. It includes inventory planning, merchandise planning, and definitely really thinking about, you know, your target customer and your segmentation and CRM and how you're allocating those dollars. I always say if you spent half as much time retaining your customers as you spent all of these resources on acquiring them, you'd have a completely different business. (laughs) Yeah, you know, and I think we we're seeing, I think it's actually kind of exciting. There are definitely always some D2C brands who are leading in the space and we see, you know, really three major growth strategies and definitely activating more channels for both CRM and for active acquisition, you know, testing TikTok, testing connected TV or streaming TV, leaning into print for both acquisition and CRM. And so, Definitely activating more marketing channels is an important opportunity for D2C brands. But also, I can't emphasize enough, and I touched on this earlier, as a matter of fact, the more product you put in front of her across categories and price points, the more revenue you will drive from her. And I always tell people I learned two things in my years at Williams Sonoma Inc. when I was on the client side. Uh, 
The first is that the best way to drive response rates is to have a range of product across categories and price points. So, okay, you know, she bought a silver few. What is she going to buy next? Mm-hmm. And that's why you see these types of brands have an incredible assortment in tabletop and seasonal decor and all of those other categories, bed and bath. The second thing I learned at Williams Snow, I tell people is that on my second day on the job, Chuck Williams himself, so I'm dating myself a little bit. He said to me, Polly, you know how you sell a $200 toaster? You put a $400 toaster next to it. <laughs> I never forgot that either. Yeah. And it completely makes sense. I mean, I to have to give you know, credit to William Sinema, right, who has mastered that technique of appropriately positioning and curating the right selection at different price points to drive a particular one that you might want to drive. I think they have done an amazing job at doing that. And that's certainly a lesson a lot of DTC brands would need to learn. And, and it also kind of speaks to theory I've always put out that, you know, so many of these DTC brands that came to be, you know, as digitally native, you know, wanted to just disrupt one particular product. And they started with that one product. And I always felt that, you know, the, the one question that does not get asked when they're finally seeing some initial success, right, they're getting a lot of new customers, is they weren't thinking through, okay, what's the frequency with which these customers I've paid to acquire now in some way yes. are going to buy again the same products. Yes. And that varies a lot by product category. Exactly. But, how often? <laughs> you know, most things people don't buy every week. Absolutely. So how often do you need to buy a mattress right. and how often do you need to buy exactly. a suitcase, right? Thinking of two, two, uh, two, two of the examples, most popular yeah. uh, brands that we've seen that now struggle to grow. Absolutely. You know, there are some really great, smart brands out there. You know, we've seen a lot of the really high growth soft goods companies. So betting companies, you know, there's a reason why they launch into loungewear, right? There's a reason why they launch into bath, right? So you see these betting soft good companies launch into other categories because, okay, so I bought a set of sheets. I bought, you know, a beautiful comforter, but what am I going to buy next from you? And you've seen home brands lean into apparel. You've seen apparel brands lean into home. You know, we're going to continue to see that. Absolutely. But honestly, you know, we were just putting together some strategies internally for clients because there are, as I said earlier, a significant amount of headwinds, I think, facing brands and retailers in the next six to 12 months. There's a lot of really inexpensive ways that don't require a lot of research and development, that don't require a lot of product development and long timelines. We were doing an assessment for a women's apparel company, and we were looking at their tops, and we were looking at tops and the price points and the sizes and the colors of their competitive set. And as we were looking at the tops, we realized, you know, you sell that long sleeve basic tee in four colors. But on average, your competitors sell their long sleeve basic tee in eight to 10 colors. And also you sell yours for $8 more on average. And so maybe if you could take and just add colorways, take your top selling products and add new colorways, think about, you know, how much would a four $6 price cut to be competitive, what kind of incremental revenue would that bring? And I think it's that type of merchandise analysis and merchandise planning and inventory management that honestly is a discipline that DTC brands don't inherently have. So it's time, as I said earlier, to hire some good old-fashioned retail operations experts. Yeah, yeah, I think that that's an excellent point. And it's one that I think that has never been quite so obvious right to the DTC brands because they had that single-minded, I have this one product that we're going to disrupt. This is one product category, this one selection we're going to disrupt. And there wasn't enough thought to, well, what happens next after you've done that? I do want to ask you uh, one question because you know, when Casey and I were thinking of what we're 
we were going to learn from you in this episode. And we thought it really tells a story about that we think of as, you know, making old media, new media in a way, in a sense that as you've been describing to us now, the different marketing mix and moving from a lot of pure digital marketing spend to other, perhaps more, more traditional, maybe some non-traditional because I heard connected TV in there as well, but I'm really intrigued by the success your clients are having in print and with catalogs, which let's call that maybe the most traditional option a lot of these brands can go with. Uh, and when we've spoken to you before, you've mentioned that when people hear catalog, they sort of have an idea in their head of what that might look like. But what you're doing now with your, your, your clients is not exactly the same kind of format. I, I think it's a maybe much and maybe you could tell us a little yeah. bit more about what's evolved in this in the print catalog space. Yeah, they're not your mother's catalogs anymore. You know, it used to be that you have a hundred page catalog and you've got, you know, five to 10 items per page and you put the whole store inside the catalog. And it used to be that 80% of catalogs went to women over 55. And she only bought what she saw on the page. And there's been just really a fundamental shift. First of all, there is a significant amount of print pieces, folded pieces, catalogs going in home to 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds. And so now the catalog isn't something you you shop from. The, the catalog or the direct mail piece is a channel driver, and it's driving her to the store to buy or is driving her to e-commerce to buy. And over the years, as we've analyzed the results, we've seen and found that actually only about a third of the product that she buys after she gets the piece was depicted in the piece, meaning that two out of three times what she buys was not in the actual piece, but it drove her to the site or it drove her to the store. So she thought she wanted one sweater. She got to the site. She bought a different sweater. So as we began to understand that there was a new purpose to print, that really it was to drive her to a channel to engage and then to buy, right? Always measuring, of course, the ROAS. Actually, I think it's ironic. Catalogers were really the original DVC brands <laughs> and catalogers were always performance-based marketers. So I like to throw that out there. But today, especially for our fashion clients and our home brand clients, definitely catalogs look more like lookbooks. They're more aspirational, more lifestyle photography, more storytelling. You know, we actually, one of the most successful catalogs in history and the thousands and thousands and thousands of campaigns we measured, when you open up this catalog, the first two spreads are actually just really an aspirational story. And yet it was extremely productive as measured by sales. And so really you're here to engage the customer and to drive her to a channel to buy. And that is the ultimate goal. Now, what we found, depending on the product assortment, depending on the price point, depending on the target consumer, first of all, you don't have to send a full, a full huge catalog anymore, right? So most of our clients are sending catalogs that are maybe 28 or 36 pages, but not, you know, 80 plus pages. So you don't have to send her as many pages. You don't have to put the whole store in the catalog. You want to just say, here's our our new products, here's our best sellers, and you want to be compelling and you want to send her to the channel to buy that she wants to buy in. And then also we've seen a whole new lifeline because print is acting as this channel driver and you don't have to put the full assortment in front of her. We've seen an incredible amount of success with folded pieces. You know, here's our top five new products of the season. Check it out online, check it out in store. And so we found that there's a different messaging and creative strategy also because of this kind of new purpose and how consumers are interacting with print. And I should say that it, it has been an amazing ride, really just, you know, hundreds of new brands in the mail the last couple of years. 
But, you know, starting over a decade ago, we launched brands like Shutterfly, Minted, Revolve, Zappos, One Cakes Lane. You know, we Allbirds, right? We started with Allbirds, they had zero customers. You know, over a decade ago, we launched all of these brands into the mail. And so some folks, I think, already could see it, you know, early on. I think what's happened is that the cost of digital marketing has become extremely competitive and saturated and promotional and expensive, and you can't always reach who you want to reach. There's an amazing amount of real estate in print to tell your story and to put your product. And also it's effective for both CRM. I always say that mailing customers is like printing money. But also for new customer acquisition, we tend to work with premium brands. And, you know, to get someone to buy a $300 sweater from you when they've never heard of your brand before, the amount of real estate goes a long way in convincing new customers to buy. That's a good point, because in those scenarios, right, you're really asking that new customer to buy your story as much as your product. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's an amount of credibility and authority just as stores give D2C brands. Credibility, I think the same as can be said of print and I like to say that millennials can spot a manufactured brand from a mile away. And I think that there's an amount of real estate that you have to tell your story. And if it's authentic, like we have clients, brands like Outer Known, who just have a credible, authentic story around sustainability and apparel and a really, you know, just a huge commitment to that as a business. And they're able to build that story with their community through print. One of the initiatives that's been happening lately that has me very excited just because I think we all kind of started in stores is more of these digitally native brands or pure play brands actually opening up stores and more pop-up. I'm a big advocate of the in-store experience. Not that many of us have had one lately. (laughs) 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 The world closed for a little bit, but I think it's a great opportunity to actually connect. Are Are you helping them? essentially kind of understand where they should be potentially opening up stores or opening up pop-ups or working on that strategy based on, because you guys know so much about where the consumer lives and that community. Yeah, certainly you can build models regarding the, you know, around trade areas to understand where your customers are at today and where your prospective best customers are at. I think to answer your original question though, you know, around just this kind of continued push of D2C brands in stores. Honestly, it's really, really very simple. In any category, more than 50% of sales are still in physical stores. So if you're not selling either in your own stores or on the floor at Nordstrom's, for example, you're not building your wholesale network, then you're missing out on 50% of your market. And so that's really what it comes down to. I think one of the things that I find more encouraging today about the retail landscape than I did before the pandemic, before the pandemic, you just saw almost an absurd level of store openings from D2C brands, brands that were suddenly opening 20, 30, 40 stores a year. When you open stores that quickly, you're not going into just A markets. You're not negotiating the best real estate deals. You aren't taking the time to build the models to understand where your customers are and where your best new prospective customers are. But I think what's great to see is I'm seeing a more cautious approach. I'm seeing that D2C brands understand they need to have a physical footprint and that maybe at the same time now they're only opening up five to seven stores a year. They're also exploring partnerships with department stores and other retailers to be on their floor. We have so many brands that we work with who sell on the floor at Anthropology, for example. 
And so I think that most of our clients have realized you have to have that physical presence in order to reach your customer where she's at when she's shopping. And also because it's a significant business opportunity. I also think, I mean, there's no question, you know, there is, I think, better real estate deals to be had in A markets because of the amount of store closings in the last couple of years. I think there are still some significant opportunities in terms of finding the right space, the right race with the right consumer. And so I think that's very encouraging. I think from what I've last seen, this is going to be the first year in a very, very long time where the number of store openings will actually outpace the number of store closings. Yeah, I kind of saw, you know, it's nice to see that this this natural transition, essentially, it's all coming back to all these different channels and touch points where there was that moment where it's just like, you just need to be online and everybody else is doing it wrong. And then you just see it come full circle where they're starting to join. We've already went through this cycle. <laughs> well, you, you said it yourself. <laughs> yeah, you said it yourself. What's old is new again. Honestly, to me, advertising on podcasts, it's radio. To me, connected TV, it's TV advertising, right? Like it's all we've been through these channels. Even outdoor media is having a huge resurgence, right? Out of home media. And so I think that, you know, what it really comes down to is that the most sophisticated marketers have realized that you need a channel mix online, offline. You need to be where your customer is at. You need mm-hmm. to have multiple distribution channels. You need to have multiple products. And I think that the high growth brands, you know, have realized that. And I think everyone else is beginning to learn as well. So, so let me ask you too uh, on, on that, Polly. One of the areas that I, I think is also interesting here is how these brands leverage different marketplaces you know, within that channel mix. I mean, what, what are your thoughts there? How do you advise brands around marketplaces? Definitely, DSC brands have had a lot of you know trepidation around the marketplaces. I definitely think though that they're going to be forced to consider it. We've already found, as we've just discussed, that you can't have an e-commerce only business. And so we saw these e-commerce brands open up stores and then we saw them add wholesale partners. And so now really the last major distribution channel as a source of revenue growth is the marketplaces. And historically, D2C brands have been very protective of their brand's message and of their new customers. And they don't want to let anyone kind of expose their brand other than how they want it presented. However, I do think that the pressure to continue to drive revenue with all of these headwinds, and because the reality is that all consumers are on the marketplaces, and you know now we've got Macy's leaning into their marketplace. I mean, every single major retailer is going to have their own marketplace online as well. I think you have to be there. I think, you know, we're finding clients kind of tiptoe into it. They're testing different strategies. They might only put part of their assortment within the marketplaces. They might actually develop a specific collection for the marketplaces. So definitely, I think they're cautious, but I think that they're going to be forced to consider trying it in ways they might not have a few years ago because they've got to drive revenue growth and because there are so many, you know, headwinds, unfortunately, at the moment. So one of the other big trends that we're talking about this season on our show are retail media networks. We've dedicated an episode on it. I was just at a grocery shop event, and that was a huge, huge trend there as well. So I'm curious, what, what's your recommendation for brands around, you know, whether it's with the marketplaces that they may be new to or as they're getting into stores and, and wholesale agreements there? How are you advising DTC brands around retail media networks? 
You know, it's interesting. I don't think that we'll see D2C brands leverage their own assets and their own impressions and their own emails and their own social for advertising income and revenue because D2C brands usually are not big enough to actually make it worthwhile to suddenly open up their own assets for advertising. But certainly as it relates to the really large retailers and the really large marketplaces, I don't know why you would choose to advertise there. You know, in order to make that advertising work, those platforms have to offer the level of targeting and segmentation that will drive the performance to justify the CPMs, the media spend. Why would you not test it? I mean, one, I think, really positive quality of D2C brands is that usually they're willing to test anything. And I think in this case, not only why would you not test it and consider it as long as you know that your target consumer is there from a sociodemographic profile perspective, but in some cases, if you are going to play, for example, on the marketplaces, you have to buy right. media right. on the marketplaces. It's not like if you build it, they will come. You've <laughs> got to have the advertising dollars to actually support your sales on the marketing place on the marketplaces. For a lot of our listeners, I'm sure they've been nodding their heads and as you speak. There's a lot of question marks though still for anybody who hasn't been looking at their their media spend in this way. What should brands be looking at a D2C or D2C brands be looking at a media spend breakdown? You know, what portion are you seeing more of a trend? Because we see it's so scary to move a portion of your business over to something new, even if it's starting to break. There's so, what are you, what do you see more as a breakdown? We can go ahead and make the shift and just close our eyes and go. <laughs> yeah. Large brands that we see, large brands and retailers that we see doing well that are significant in size and have e-commerce and mm -hmm. have stores, they've really shifted to almost a 40-40-20 marketing mix where 40% of their spend is digital marketing. 40% is offline, which could include actually TV, radio, print, out-of-home media. And then 20% is really PR partnerships, sponsorships, influencers, you know, things around content and community. So, you know, to 40% across the digital channels, 40% across all kind of other, you know, non-digital channels. And then what's really encouraging to see, smaller brands can't afford often to spend, you know, top of funnel. But as a matter of fact, high growth brands do spend top of funnel. And so you'll see the companies are beginning to carve out 10 to 20% of their spend. So they get the PR, they get the influencers, they get the sponsorships and the partnerships that allows them to build community. So if there's a if there's a direct-to-consumer brand right now that's listening, what's the ballpark range they need to be looking at for budgeting to launch a campaign, a, a direct mail campaign? Okay. Well, I thought you were going to ask a bigger <laughs> picture question. What percent of top line revenue do you have to spend? High growth emerging brands are spending, you know, 20 to 25% of top line revenue on marketing. Mature businesses spend closer to 10 to 15% of top line revenue on marketing. And big retailers and wholesale brands might only spend, you know, 6 to 10% of their top line revenue on marketing. But definitely, if you're an emerging D2C brand today, you're definitely spending 20 to 25% of your top line revenue. So for every $100, you're spending 20 to $25 to get that. So just in terms of what you have to spend as an emerging brand to get traction, 
Absolutely. If you think you can build a brand from scratch that's spending, you know, $10 on the $100, it'll never happen. We're, those days are, are past us. In terms of, you know, really testing friend wealth here at Bellardi Wong, we only, you know, we run the largest, you know, most scalable, sophisticated mm-hmm. programs in the country. So we don't do anything small, cheaper, schlosky. So we're, we're a, a little bit more on the premium side here, really to get a solid proof of concept with all of the industry best practices in place for both CRM and acquisition, mm-hmm. you're looking at about a seventy-five dollars to $100,000 test in print. And we've launched over 250 D2C brands into the mail successfully. And even little baby ones, a few thousand customers, and they're all spending that much money. So yep. on their first campaign, still less expensive, you know, still half as much as a three-week TV campaign. So yeah. I mean, um, hey, I mean, you know, I mean, that could just be one post by a ticket a certain, a couple of TikTok influencers too. So, I mean, you know, it, that's the, you know, here's the ironic thing. You could put a beautiful full-size catalog in front of a consumer for 85 cents. Your cost per click nowadays is, you know, two or $3. So yeah. the yeah. thing that's really crazy is that you can mail four five, six catalogs to a highly targeted audience for the cost of one click. So I think that that's, you know, it seems expensive, but There's actually some efficiency there. <laughs> um, for the quality yeah. touch, yeah. yes, it makes a I lot agree. of sense. And it's really just being able to say, like, instead of spending that 100K, the 200,000 on this, let's just go ahead and move it over here and run a test. Because I think everything that you've really kind of ran through, through this conversation and what you guys are doing, it's, it's, it's incredibly compelling. And it's a lot of things that potentially these customer bases or the brands are just not as familiar with because they don't have a lot of seasoned retailers in their company orgs. And so a lot of it, we see somebody doing something where like, you really only have one product. Like you do realize that there's like issues with this. <laughs> Who gave you money? you know and then now those conversations i think well you know what's going to be really interesting to see is that it's not going to be very easy we're already finding this we actually do due diligence on d2c transactions because of all of our experience here at blarding long and not this summer but last summer we worked on six transactions and this summer we didn't work on any transactions i think very quickly it's going to be a very tough landscape for raising dollars at this yeah. moment in time. And already the industry has become a little bit weary because some of the evaluations and the losses that have happened over the last couple of years. So I think companies are going to have to be scrappier and smarter because it's not going to be so easy to get someone to give you, you know, 20, 30 million dollars just like that. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I, I think that this is just, I'm really excited to see some comments once this kind of gets pushed out. Because I know that this is going to be some new content that they haven't really thought about as even an option. Yeah, and I I do want to go back to one thing that you mentioned in the 40-40-20 split, where you had in that 20%, you know, kind of lumped together in in PR, things like influencers. And that tends to get a lot of attention uh, around, you know, what brands are spending with influencers and how they're using them. Are they on TikTok yet? What are you seeing there that's actually successful? You know, the truth is, is that for most clients, you know, influencers can reach a small target community, but we haven't seen for most clients a huge amount of scale. Unless you're willing to spend a few hundred thousand dollars with an influencer who really has significant reach and 
real influence on what consumers are buying. We just haven't found that for most of our clients that actually influencers can drive any kind of sustainable scale. So maybe you pay a lot of money and, you know, Mary Jane, the influencer, does a series of posts maybe over two weeks about some of your new product. Maybe you get a momentary surge in sales, but it's not sustainable and you can't continue to spend those kinds of dollars for those really high touch posts. And so the one challenge that we do find with influencer marketing is it takes a lot of like work to implement and it is often not truly scalable. It's also kind of interesting to see what's going on on TikTok because definitely, you know, that that cut meta spend is shifting to TikTok. But TikTok is also hard to measure for the same reasons that it's hard to measure meta, right? Because of platform changes and challenges. And for the most part, because it's hard to measure the return on ad spend on TikTok, it tends to be a top of funnel channel. Mm -hmm. Well, I can tell you that in a recession, the money for top of funnel marketing is going to dry up very quickly. And so you're going to be focused on those channels that can drive real performance and ROAS because you just don't have enough funding to, 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 to spend on those top channels. So it'll be really interesting to see over the next six months how advertising dollars shift around. I usually feel pretty comfortable giving my kind of predictions for retail sales and e-commerce sales. But honestly, at this point, just hand me an eight ball. I have no idea (laughs) when I continue to be, I'm going to continue to cross my fingers and my toes and hope that at least for our clients that affluent consumers are still spending this holiday season. Yeah. And so, so based on what you just said, right around top of funnel and those, is there an argument to be made that if you're going to spend on influencers or TikTok that you're, you might want to save that for when you have a new product launch versus just trying to drive sales of an existing product? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not something you can right, leave you on 365. It, right? You're going to turn it on. You can't. You're going you're gonna to turn it on maybe three or four times. You know, in the world of retail, we think about five seasons, winter, spring, summer, fall, and holiday. And so you're really going to lean in just a mm-hmm. few weeks of each season into your influencer marketing and that spend and really lean into your peak sales curve to drive those new product sales and to get that reach. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes complete sense. So so last question for you, Pauline, if, if someone were to come and ask you right now, what's your top recommendation when you think about growth strategies for a DTC brand, what would you tell them? Considering the economic uncertainty, the headwinds and the rising costs across the entire PL, I would say that my top two recommendations are to one, lean into CRM, make sure that you're activating all five channels, targeting your existing customer base. And then two, because you're targeting your existing customers, continue to focus on your product category expansion. You know, what is your range of product across categories and price points? Consumers may start spending down. They may be more value focused than ever. So, you know, what is your good, better, best merchandise strategy, right? Not only are you adding simple things like more color skews to your long sleeve t-shirt, but, you know, is there a good, better, best strategy for your product? Motorcycle clients we have worked with have done this extremely well. There's a good, better, best motorcycle helmet. And the best one has got Bluetooth and all kinds of fun things in it. And in addition to keeping your, your, your head safe. So definitely, I think leaning into your customer file is a tremendous profitable asset. And then just giving existing customers more to buy. I do think there's plenty of time to lean into new customer acquisition, you know, as we begin to see some of the 
the economic uncertainty clear up, mm-hmm. hopefully, by spring. I actually am quite confident that I do think things will level out. I think we'll be back sailing along by spring of 2023 is mm-hmm. is my hope. So fingers crossed. Yeah, I think you may be, may be right about that. And it kind of says that if I kind of read into the two areas you highlighted for a lot of DTC brands, there's probably some new hires they need to look for to help them <laughs> with those strategies, particularly around merchandising those new products, products like you talked about earlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think you have to, and also to pay attention to the competition. Mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing to me. I think brands do tend to be inwardly focused and, you know, maybe now people will have the time and to kind of step back and say, how does my assortment look compared to my competitors? What are my price points? What are my size ranges? What are my number of colors? You know, what is my returns policy? You know, how do I stand up against the competition? Everybody's going to have to just be a little bit smarter. I think that's another great point. I mean, I even on for traditional retailers, I, I can't count how many times in the past I've been in, in a room with retailers and asked them, well, when was the last time you walked one of your competitors' stores to see what they were doing? And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know sometimes whether I wanted to laugh or cry at the fact that there were just crickets in the room and nobody responded when I asked that question. No, so there's definitely some truth to that. Absolutely. Well, Polly, this has been a Absolutely. fantastic well, discussion. Probably going to go down as one of the, our, our most commented <laughs> episodes with so much in good information and, and advice and I think really unique details that you've helped surface here for, for DTC brands as they grow into uh, what I would call becoming a, a, a full channel <laughs> retailer in, in a sense uh, and really did you know, cover a lot of ground around making old media new media like we started to talk about earlier. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun this afternoon to connect with you. And I I hope you both have a a lovely fall season. Definitely. For our listeners who have been furiously taking notes during this episode, what's the best way for them to reach out to you or follow your company? Yeah, obviously we're on the social channels, but if you want to reach out through the Contact Us page at Lardy Wong, if you would like to talk to me directly or have any questions or comments for me directly, I know that they'll they'll make their way to me and I'm always happy to chat and connect. Great. Great. Well, thank you again, Polly, for joining us. We hope to have you back soon. Thank you so much. Have a great one. You too. That's a wrap, Ricardo. We hope you enjoyed our show. And we can't ask you enough to please give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts to help us grow and bring you more great episodes. If you don't want to miss a minute of what's next, be sure to smash that subscribe button in your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to check out our show notes for handy links and more deeds. I'm your host, Casey Golden. And if you'd like to learn more about the two of us, follow us on Twitter at KCC Golden and Ricardo underscore Belmar, or find us on LinkedIn. Be sure to follow the show on LinkedIn and Twitter at Retail Razor, plus our YouTube channel for videos of each episode and bonus content. I'm your host, Ricardo Belmar. Thanks for joining us. And remember, there's never been a better time to be in retail if you cut through the clutter. Until next time, this is the Retail Razor Show.